Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, May 8th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter, at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you could subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Inquiring Minds listeners, there's a great science podcast that you may not be listening to called Talk Nerdy, hosted by my friend Cara Santamarita. Every Monday, a new episode drops with a casual conversation between Cara and a special scientist and or science communicator. The format's very loose and conversational, just like Inquiring Minds. Notable guests have included our own Andre Viscontis. I've been on myself, Phil Plate, Susan Blackmore, Simon Singh, Jan Eleven. The list goes on and on and on. Her podcast is totally free, and she's an amazing host. Definitely worth a listen. If you're interested, go to carasantamaria.com and listen to the podcast or check out her Patreon at patreon.com slash talknerdy. This week's guest happens to be space science writer Shannon Stiro. Just last month, Arkansas undertook an unprecedented series of executions using lethal injection drugs. This was unprecedented both by how quickly the executions took place, just over a matter of days, but the controversy also revolves around a bit of a scientific issue. The lethal injection drugs obtained have been in short supply, and the shortage is causing a rapid undertaking of these executions. The problem gets even more complicated as the manufacturers of the drug that is used for lethal injection have asked these drugs to be taken off the market and restricted their use putting many states that are using these drugs in a very difficult situation. And we thought we'd take a look at this issue from a different perspective of what happens to somebody when they're injected with some of these drugs. Now, lethal injection is a sensitive topic, and we're going to get into a lot of areas that may be uncomfortable for our listeners this week. But one of the reasons why I get into it is the fact that lethal injection drugs are not all the same. There's a number of them on the market. 
and many of them have different impacts on the human body system. Lethal injection drugs are actually a cocktail of different drugs. Once a sedative is administered to uh, render the prisoner unconscious, a set of drugs are injected to essentially stop the heart. Now, these drugs are not just used for lethal injection. They actually have some positive benefits as well. And the manufacturers of the drug want them pulled from the market because they were designed for the beneficial use, not for this use on death row. The question remains, what happens when you're actually injected with these drugs? We sought out opinions from a number of scientists, and we have a special conversation this week with Teresa Zimmers. She's an associate professor of surgery at Indiana University, and her prior work revolved around whether or not lethal injection drugs actually provide a humane, painless death as promised. Using different execution records and autopsy data, they actually tried to uncover some of the details of how long patients survived from when they were first injected until they finally passed. And using this data was able to extrapolate some information about what it's like to actually be injected with these drugs. This is, again, a difficult conversation that touches a lot of sensitive topics, Regardless of how you feel about the death penalty, we think it's an important lesson in the context of today's recent news on the shortages of these drugs. So with that, we're going to take a short break and be back with my conversation with Teresa Zimmers. This week's episode is brought to you by Bombfell. Men, nailing down your style can be a tricky feat, especially if you're not big into shopping like me. Thankfully, there's Bombfell, an online personal styling service that helps men find the right clothes for them. And take it from me, I tried it. The style totally fit my lifestyle, casual, comfortable, and upgraded my look in the simplest way possible with clothes that I'm going to wear for months, maybe years to come. Best of all, we've partnered with Bonfell to get our listeners a special offer of $25 off your first purchase when you go to bombfell.com slash minds. That's bombfell spelled B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash minds for $25 off your first purchase. You're in total control, no hidden fees or gotchas. You only pay for what you keep. Plus, you can reschedule or skip shipments anytime. I can't recommend Bombfell enough. Inquiring Minds listeners, you should check out Talk Nerdy, the science podcast hosted by Kara Santamaria. Every Monday, she hosts a new conversation with a science communicator or a scientist. You might know Kara as one of the guest hosts of Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. She's also an Emmy and Knight Foundation winning journalist, television presenter, and producer. Her podcast features some of the best minds in science. Both Indre and I have been on as special guests. It's fun, free, conversational, casual. I know you'll love it. Check it out at carasantamaria.com or go to patreon.com slash talknerdy. This week's guest happens to be space science writer Shannon Steerone. Teresa Zimmers, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Where did the interest in researching lethal injection years ago begin for you? 
It actually began because my husband um, had a childhood friend, John, um, Jonathan Sheldon, who is a capital post-conviction defense attorney who was interested in this question. And over many conversations, we discussed what could be the scientific or medical basis for the protocol. And um, with some research, we rapidly came to the conclusion that actually there wasn't much of a scientific or medical basis for this particular protocol. And then we, we delved into it um, full force. And your work, you know, was really a few years ago. How many, how many years ago since your papers on, on the topic? It's been quite some time now. It's been about 12 years since our first paper. Has the field progressed much since those papers came out? Well, I don't, you know, we actually stopped um, doing any research into this field after a few years. And I've seen that there have been a few papers that have come out. But um, in terms of actual research into the methodology of lethal injection, I don't think that significantly more has been done. But I I, I could be wrong, because I said we stopped sort of following the field. But I think what's been characterizing um, lethal injection generally since then is sort of this ad hoc effort to develop new protocols on the fly based on, um, you know, in response to judicial orders or the lack of availability of certain drugs. Um, so I would say not only in the academic sector is to have there not been a lot of research, but there's been really no research in the um, development of these new protocols. Before we get into the the science, I want to give people a landscape of lethal injections. There seems to be about a thousand lethal injections total. How easy is it to come across the data regarding the actual lethal injections, both the what happens to the patient and uh, how these states are administering the lethal injection? So the way that we got access to the records that we analyzed for our papers was um, through Freedom of Information Act requests, as well as getting access to exhibits that had been filed in other court cases. So um, as I said, John Sheldon is an attorney and he filed some of those Freedom of Information Act requests for us and uh, they were forthcoming from the places that we requested them in general. And when they weren't, we got them from case files. So it definitely took some effort to uh, aggregate this this work. It's, it's not like there's a publicly available database that you can go to that each state maintains. Absolutely. And in fact, it's been very difficult um, to get specific information from certain states, for example, from the state of Virginia. Um, and they often say they actually have no documents. Um, for example, they... Um, when we tried to get um, any of the documentation around the creation of the protocol, we were told that there there weren't any. You've alluded to the protocol. How standard are the protocols state to state? Well, originally, most states used this three-drug protocol. Um, but in fact, there were a variety of protocols that were used you know, within certain states um, and since then. So there's been quite a bit of variation um, from execution to execution and from state to state. So let's get into the science a little bit. You alluded to the three-drug protocol that is most commonly used. Can you tell us a little bit about this sort of cocktail and what's included in it? Well, that was the protocol that was most commonly used until the first drug became unavailable. And the first drug was thiopental, which was an anesthetic that was intended to render the inmate 
um, insensate to the next two drugs. And the next drug was pancuronium bromide, which was supposed to cause um, paralysis. And the final drug was potassium chloride, which was intended to stop the heart. And so thiopental, you said, became unavailable. And that availability restriction came was the result of what? Was it restrictions from the drug companies themselves? Yes. In fact, I think um, the manufacturer became aware that thiopental was being used in lethal injections in the United States. Um, the manufacturer is European, objected to that use, and then made it um, unavailable to jurisdictions for purchase. So even though the protocol has changed in terms of the nature of the drugs, I believe in Arkansas, midazolam is being used now instead of thiopental. Um, uh, the the purpose of these drugs in, in the current protocols are, are similar. Is that correct? Well, I think that that is probably the intent, that the um, anesthetic-type drug is intended to cause loss of consciousness and potentially respiratory arrest, um, whether or not that actually happens. But I think that is the intent. And then some um, jurisdictions have gone to the single drug protocol, pentobarbital, which, um, again, the manufacturer has sought to make unavailable to um, American prisons. Um, so they've had some difficulty implementing that as well. And I don't think we discussed sort of the third item in the in this sort of um, uh, protocol, the potassium chloride that's typically used. Um, what is that usually used to cause? So the intent of the potassium chloride is to cause cardiac arrest. So... In um, a paper that we published in 2006 in PLOS Medicine, um, we asked, um, did the drugs that were used in the three-drug protocol at the time induce death in the way that the um, practitioners of this have long contended that they do? And with respect to potassium chloride in particular, what we found was, based on uh, execution records in North Carolina and California, um, that it seemed that the potassium chloride didn't actually reliably induce cardiac arrest. In fact, there were actually EKGs or ECG tracings, and it was um, quite variable from inmate to inmate when there was actually a cessation of the heartbeat. Um, so it's not at all clear that the protocol works as advertised. Is it that the drug isn't effective or the dosage wasn't appropriately calibrated for the patient or something else entirely? Well, I think you're, you're, you're calling the inmate a patient, which <laughs> is easy to do in this case because it has all the trappings of, of, medical, of a medical procedure. But, of course, it's not a patient. It's an inmate. And, you know, as scientists, we speak as conservatively as we can. So all we're looking at is these um, post-mortem records we don't know if all of the drugs were ever delivered at the dose that is um, specified. We don't know if the IVs were set properly. Um, the doses of the drugs are generally not um, calibrated to the weight of the inmates. They're generally bolus doses of gram quantities of drug um, so that the, the actual final dose varies quite a lot. So it's not clear precisely why. The inmates did not expire immediately. The heart didn't stop beating immediately upon administration of potassium chloride. It's possible it was a um, faulty delivery. Um, that's not clear. All that we did know is that once they added potassium chloride to the three-drug protocol or to the protocol in North Carolina, that didn't hasten the time to death the way you might expect, and that the onset of potassium chloride administration in California did not correlate with um, 
um, a more rapid cessation of heart rate. So it sort of suggests that maybe the that the mechanism of death and lethal injection isn't precisely the way it's advertised. And when you say that these inmates were expiring at a longer timescale than what was initially projected, can you give people an idea of, of what we're talking about in terms of the timescale that the intention of the protocol was uh, was set to achieve and, and what the data was telling you? Well, I don't know if, if there is I, I can't speak to intent in terms of the time frame and the design of the protocol. What I can tell you is that the uh, the references to the design of the protocol are that the potassium chloride is intended to stop the heart. Um, however, the addition of the potassium chloride does not speed um, cardiac arrest or death. Over the two drug, when um, North Carolina, for example, initially had a two drug protocol, just thiopental and pancuronium, then they added potassium chloride, and that didn't reduce time to death. And in California, um, they record um, the administration of each drug. And in California, the time to death ranged from two minutes to eight minutes after the addition of the potassium chloride. Um, so it seemed that there wasn't a particularly, you know, tightly temporally correlated administration of the potassium chloride and the onset of cardiac arrest. And so that led us to actually speculate that the potential mechanism of death could actually be asphyxiation due to respiratory arrest brought about by the pancronium bromide, which would be effective even if the um, IV weren't properly set because it can work intramuscularly as well. I've heard this described that the the reason that there's three drugs involved is it also offers these layers that you kind of alluded to, that if one doesn't work in, in, in the exact way that we expect, there is another layer of protection so that the death occurs. Is that true? So if you read the testimony of the expert witnesses on behalf of the state, um, there's a lot of emphasis on thiopental as potentially mediating death, that thiopental in these doses should cause immediate um, respiratory arrest in 99.999% of persons to whom it's administered. So yes, I think that there is the argument that multiple different drugs administered at these high, apparently high doses um, could provide some redundancy. And I think it's important to note that most of these drugs are actually used for other purposes, uh, mostly therapeutic and beneficial uh, uses, and that this usage of these drugs is is not at least most of the manufacturer's intent to be uh, used this way. Is that correct? Correct. I think that um, I would doubt that any of them intended them to be used this way. There are specific drugs that are used in animal euthanasia, for example, but these are not those drugs. And many of the manufacturers have objected to the use of their drugs in these protocols. And, you know, these um, protocols were not designed per se. They were um, sort of the brainchild of a medical examiner in Oklahoma when they had to replace their gas chamber. So the protocol was never empirically tested. If you go back through the long history of literature on the use of thiopental therapeutically, it actually is quite interesting that there are patients that are very sensitive to thiopental and experience um, apnea with very small doses and others that are remarkably tolerant that have gotten very high doses and you know, slept and reawakened. So um, I think these drugs, because they were never intended to be used this way, were never tested this way, can have some pretty 
unexpected results, particularly in this population of individuals, many of whom you know, probably have a history of drug abuse and tolerance to some of these types of medications. That opens the question, can they ever be tested for the situation that they're being used in? I, I know that's a clear outcome of your of your paper is that we don't have a science basis or, or a clinical basis for for the protocol that's being used. But is it even reasonable in the current environment to imagine that happening? So this is something um, we wrote about in a paper and discussed at a um, Fordham University symposium on lethal injection and the death penalty. And the fact of the matter is, even more today than then, which was several years ago now, um, the states have certainly been tinkering with this protocol. And not only the states, but certain judges have been mandating that certain drugs be used. So there's been a very active substitution of various drugs into this protocol with, of course, no corresponding investigation. One could imagine that within the constraints of the Belmont Report and the way that we um, do human subjects research, that there are you know, could be some research done alongside of this. I'm not advocating that there should be, there ought to be, that there needs to be, except that um, what we have here is a masquerade. It's something that pretends to be science and pretends to be medicine, but isn't. And I think the problem with that is that then citizens look at these lethal injections that have all the trappings of modern medicine and all of the trust that goes along with that, and they bring that to watching these executions and believe that this is a humane or painless death. And for some people, that is critical in their acceptance or not of the death penalty. And for those people, they should understand that, you know, that this isn't science. This is a pretense of science. Well, I, that's shocking on so many levels that, A, that a protocol like this which is clearly a, a healthcare clinical situation, is being tinkered with by judges, with all due respect to judges. Uh, that you use the word tinker is, um, is shocking. But at the same time, this idea of, of how people are making decisions about this when they go to the voting booth, for example, and on their feelings about this, as you walk away from you know years of research of this and, and discussion on the topic, what is the message to the everyday person as they're considering really a, a difficult concept of how do we proceed with a death penalty under the pretense of of it being safe and humane? Um, I think that there is so much to unpack when people um, think about the death penalty in general. This is actually a fairly small aspect of that, but I think people should come away with the understanding that... This is a co-opting of their trust and that they should have healthy suspicion about um, whether or not this is, you know, a, a humane end. Where do you see this going in the future? Obviously, you uh, mentioned that there's not an, a, a great deal of research in the, in the field. And we've also alluded to that the FDA and drug companies are restricting the usage of these drugs and even shipment of drugs to prisons in certain states. Where do things end up? Do you have any sense of where things are going? 
I think at the moment it seems to be something of a free-for-all, and we're seeing that there is a lot of risk associated with it and a lot of really surprising and shocking and difficult um, outcomes in these executions. I think the way that politics are going in this country presently, I doubt that there will be um, necessarily a, a movement that will overtake everyone to demand, you know, more humane executions. I don't see that happening. Um, but for those for whom that matters, I would just like them to be aware of what the issues are. And lastly, do you feel like there should be some more scientific work done on this topic? Is it is it a big enough issue for us to invest in it um, as a country? You know, we have so many pressing problems, and this is a fairly difficult question, although, you know, it, it really isn't that difficult. As a um, biomedical researcher who uses animals, you know, large animal euthanasia that's brought about, you know, in, in the in a, as humane way as possible is something that is done at academic medical centers um, and, you know, pharmaceutical companies around the world on a daily basis. This is certainly not Im an impossibility in terms of determining an appropriate regimen, an appropriate approach. And moreover, you know, physician-assisted suicide is now practiced in this country and elsewhere. The data that I have seen and the papers that I have read suggest that that is not easy either. So, I don't know in terms of the um, what is the overall value to society in addressing pain during execution. Um, I think we have a lot of really pressing problems to address as a country right now. Um, and I can tell you that I've myself have turned away from this particular topic. What I actually realized um, during this process was how great the chasm is between um, judicial speak and scientific speak, because actually um, our paper was referenced in that uh, lawsuit in um, Kentucky. And what the justices concluded, um, Justice Boyer concluded, was that you really couldn't, uh, one couldn't really take away with any certainty the, the message that maybe these inmates were inadequately anesthetized during their executions because we had couched our conclusions in the way that scientists typically do. We um, wrote paragraphs about the limitations of our study, which were necessarily retrospective and limited. Um, However, I think we would have been a little more strong in our opinions had we thought that we had to convince jurists because, of course, they speak and communicate very differently. And I think that this gap between the way we communicate and the way they communicate um, can be um, very problematic. And I think we saw something of that with the um, patents around CRISPR as well. So it's a very interesting sidelight into all of this. That interaction between science and the law has come up a lot on this show recently, both with um, the patent uh, fight over CRISPR um, and just even when we've covered shows on memory and how neuroscience and the law interact in, in a lot of ways. So I think that ongoing intersection is a, is a tremendous issue for us to explore more. And it seems like it's given you pause and uh, a moment of reflection on, on how your own work might be presented in that context going forward. Um, at um, least that's what I'm hearing. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I've, um, 
And learning to communicate to the public better, I think, you know, and, and shows like yours and efforts like yours and the, the, the San Francisco Science Festival are so important, I think, in getting the scientists to talk to the policymakers and to the public and all of us understand each other at some level of common language. Otherwise, what we do can be taken and co-opted and twisted in such a way that we never intended. Hey, it still will, no matter what. But at least I'm hoping <laughs> that... Uh, I'm betting that if we can uh, increase long-term trust in scientists and therefore in the process of science, that we can battle those for the we can defend science in a more robust way, because trust is something that lasts and can last generations if if done well. Defending one science issue is is good for just that one battle. I hope it results in something, but I think it's important that it's it's a conversation and a dialogue that begins with listening to people's values and then having science be part of that conversation as opposed to the other way around. Absolutely. And I have to say that we did not use any um, government resources in performing these <laughs> investigations. Um, that's something that a lot of people emailed and commented about Um the U.S. government did not fund our investigations into lethal injection for execution. It was all done as sort of our <clears throat> sidelight while we were conducting uh, more standard biomedical research in our day jobs. Teresa Zimmers, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're, you're welcome. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com or patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. See you then. And Inquiring Minds listeners, remember to check out Talk Nerdy, a new weekly science podcast hosted by Kara Santamaria. New episodes come down every Monday. She features incredible guests from across the world of science. Both Indre and I have been on, and it's an great show. It's loose, it's fun, it's casual, and highly entertaining. For episodes, go to carasantamaria.com or check out her Patreon at patreon.com slash talknerdy. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.